I was recently reading a book that pointed to a particular comic um, that many of you may be familiar with. In the printed newspaper, often you can find those little funny comics uh, in there, and I always particularly enjoy those. And one of them that's often funny is Kathy, uh, if you have ever remember that comic strip. And, and many of you may be particularly familiar with this. But in this particular comic strip, this author is pointing to, Kathy is sitting at home sort of just thinking uh, about her own life and thinking about her thoughts. And as she sits there and ponders and thinks about all the work that she has left undone, as she looked over her life and began to consider, and she began to say the, you know, the things that she promised herself that she would do but never did, but always wanted to do, were the things that she made herself feel uh, really miserable and could have avoided. She looked over, and as she began to consider the things left undone in her life, she began to become depressed and deepened in that sorrow. She talked about the things she could have done for her family, uh, for her dog, for her friends, uh, for her co-workers, her neighbors, her, her finances, her home, her closet, her diet, and millions of other people in the world that, that she could have helped with her life. And, and as the frame sort of ends, Kathy says this in the comic, even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. And, uh, you know, maybe this morning you feel like Kathy. We're, we're like her in that way. We go through life every day with baggage, with luggage. We, we feel to be weighted down. Even though we're really not making any trips, we, we really feel weighed down. We, we feel the weight of life. And the Bible has a word for this luggage. It's called condemnation. It's called condemnation where we feel condemned, where we feel shame and, and guilt. We feel guilty that we didn't do something. We didn't you know, give ourselves to our kids like maybe we should have, or we didn't give the attention to our job like we should have, or maybe perhaps we feel guilty we don't love our spouse or our family the way we should. There is so much condemnation that we feel. And you might feel pressure this morning living in a fallen world. And friends, I just wonder, what will you do? Where will you turn? How do we deal with shame and guilt? How does the Gospel of Jesus Christ help to remove that sort of daily feeling of shame and guilt? How is this load lifted from us? And that's what we want to think about together in God's Word today. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 53. If you're not looking, used to looking at a Bible, there are some Bibles right in front of you. I just encourage you to grab that Bible in front of you and turn to page 851. Uh, and you'll find it down at the bottom of the page in verse 53. Hear the Word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even in their testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. As we move in the narrative, we find ourselves growing closer and closer to the cross. Passages that for many of us are quite familiar. Ones that we are used to hearing and even particularly in this season as we move closer to Easter and to Resurrection Sunday. And so as we come to these passages, my prayer as we take a slow and often somewhat methodical look at them, that you, your heart grows ever closer to Christ as you wonder in what Christ has done for your sake. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus here faces a pre pre preliminary trial uh, before the Sanhedrin, uh, that is the ruling elders. And he's going to be from there sent off to Pilate. And, and, uh, and now Mark is a little different than some of the other Gospels. Uh, not that the story is different, but that some of the information is just compiled in either a different order and or it is some of the stories are, are sort of missing. And the reason is, is because Mark is writing to Christians. That's important to remember. Mark is writing to a church, a particular church in Rome. And he's writing to these Christians to encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ amidst persecution. And so we want to remember that. Mark is not like Luke, for example, who is writing a detailed and orderly account uh, of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Mark is, is rather giving us a very quick, fast-paced overview of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And Mark's main goal, as we've seen over and over, is to point out those two main themes, which is, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And so if you take those kind of two questions and understand the context of who he's writing to, as you read through the narrative, you begin to understand why Mark includes particular information and why he skips over other information. It's not that Mark doesn't find it important. It just doesn't serve to answer really those two questions. And he could be like John, who compiles everything. And, and if you remember, or maybe you've not seen, but at the end of John's gospel, he has that little pithy thing at the end where he says, well, look, if we could write a story about Jesus' life, he's like, all the books in the world couldn't contain it, right? Um, you couldn't 
Stop writing about the infinite God. And so John concludes with that. Look, there's a lot more that could be said about Jesus. All right? And so don't allow those kind of things to discourage you in your walk with Christ as you sort of see, like, well, why is Mark leaving that out? That seems a helpful detail. Well, Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, wrote what the Spirit of God told him to write, and that we rest in this morning. And so what we see in this passage then is that the king is growing ever closer to his throne. Remember Jesus' words back in chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, right? Repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. Well, how do we know the kingdom of God is here? Well, because the king has arrived. The king has come. And in this passage, though we might conclude from this passage that, wow, Jesus doesn't look much like a king in this passage. doesn't seem as if his kingdom is advancing very well. But what we understand is that this king will not ascend the throne through, this ma- like through a massive army, but rather as a suffering servant. That servant that we heard about in Isaiah 53. The kingdom of God has come for her king is ready to ascend the throne of glory. That's what we want to give ourselves and think about this morning. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through this passage and then think about really three implications for our lives. All right, so first I want to think about what does the text say? What, What does the text say and mean? And then really jump in then finally to application, driving home what How can we as Christians appropriate this passage to our lives together as God's people? And so let's go through this passage very quickly. We're just going to kind of sketch out an overview. Uh, We have been confronted here. Jesus has been led away, and we saw last week that he was arrested. We considered last week in verses 43 through 52 the circumstances surrounding the arrest of Jesus. And, And so Jesus has now been betrayed by Judas arrested by the guards and sent to the high priest. Uh, And so here he is. His name's not mentioned. This is Caiaphas. Uh, We only know that because John tells us that. All right. And so this is Caiaphas, the high priest. And and he goes before the high priest. And you'll notice here in verse 53 that he's not alone. It's not just him and the high priest, but rather him and the other chief priests, the elders and the scribes. And they all come together. Now, You know, some folks kind of debate, does that mean all, meaning everyone, or or does this mean some, or what? Really don't know. But what we understand is that an ad hoc sort of group of uh, ruling uh, group of people have gathered together. This is is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling uh, group of people there in Jerusalem. All right, they were the ones that were in charge. All right, they were made up of these individuals, and they come together, some 70 in a whole, and they gather together, not in their normal meeting place, by the way, but rather at the, at the house of the high priest, which then furthers our understanding that what they were trying to do here is to find any means to arrest Jesus. Their behavior throughout this passage is very evident, is it not? We see that they're trying to drum up support, uh, drum up false testimony. And so one of the things that might be helpful for you as you think about this passage is in America, we have a a system called the grand jury. So if a prosecutor isn't sure whether or not they have enough evidence to bring charges against, or maybe they're too afraid to bring those charges, they'd rather put that in the hands of someone else, uh, they convene a grand jury. And so maybe... 
someone here today maybe has served on a grand jury before, where during that grand jury you hear testimonies, and then based on that evidence that's presented via testimony, you conclude whether or not you should indict that person on those particular charges that are being presented by the prosecutor. All right, or grand juries in America might modify the charge. They might say, "Well, we're not going to, you know, maybe first degree murder, but maybe second degree murder. Maybe we think that they could be." And so, without getting into the details of the American judicial system, what I want you to understand is there's kind of what's going on right here. What they're doing is kind of like a grand jury, although not exactly like it. They are, they want witnesses, they want testimonies, so that they can have sort of written down, verifiable witness testimonies that Jesus Christ is guilty of some crime that is deserving death. I want you to notice here in this passage that there's really nothing that they can drum up that verifies that, but all while, one understand is that this is a puppet government, okay? <laughs> they really didn't have the authority to kill anyone. They didn't have the authority to do any of what they're doing here. What they're doing is they're trying to come up with enough evidence to take to Pilate so that Pilate can do that. All right? And so the, you know, the, they didn't have, you know, Old Testament laws weren't in force anymore because the Romans were in power. They were not in power. And so when we understand this passage, it's helpful to understand what these folks are doing. And I want to pinpoint just a few parts throughout this. First, I want you to notice here in verse 54, Peter. Now we're going to talk about Peter more next week, but I want you to notice where Peter is in all of this. Peter is at a distance. And he's right there in the court of the high priest. And he was sitting there with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And so what you want to understand, why would Mark include that statement? Well, because what we, what we see here is if you kind of back up a little bit and take this whole passage, this and then the passage that, that, that follows it, when you take it as a whole, what we see is Mark, as he's done throughout, is comparing two particular people. He, he's comparing Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, with Peter, Petros, the rock. And he's comparing Jesus' faithfulness to his father and Peter's unfaithfulness. And, and, he's in, and remember, if Mark is writing to Christians, would that not be an encouragement? To say, like, look, sometimes as Christians we fail. Here's an example. Peter, the leader of the church here in Rome, our pastor, is a failure. He falls. He makes mistakes. He's not perfect. He's not perfect. And so as we consider that next week, I think it's just helpful to remember why is this in here and what are we doing. Now let's back to the trial before Jesus. We're told in verses 55 through 56 that they are trying to drum up charges against Jesus. They want testimony, but they don't care who's giving the testimony, and they really don't care what the testimony is. In fact, Mark tells us that they, in verse 56, were bearing false testimony against him. They were lying. They were, they were deceiving. They were intentionally doing this. And the chief priest and the scribes and the elders knew it. They were the ones who were guilty. And they're here drumming up these in verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying this, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now in Mark's gospel, Jesus never says that, although we know that he did say that. 
We go to other gospel writers. We know that Jesus was guilty of saying that. And notice what he says. He says that that he's going to destroy this man-made temple. This temple of idolatry. It had become a temple of idolatry. And Jesus is going to destroy that temple. And he is going to build another temple. That is his body. Yet even in this, they did not agree. They couldn't get their stories straight. They, they really were struggling here in their false indictment of Jesus. They couldn't even get it straight. And what we see here is the depth of human depravity. Again, we see the lengths in which the high priest would go to see Jesus killed. Remember, these are the, the leaders of Israel. These are the leaders of God's people. These are the ones who have been given the... the the Word of God. They, these are the ones who were supposed to live in holiness and, and godliness and Christ-likeness. These are the ones that were supposed to teach God's people how to faithfully follow Him. But they're the ones that are trying to kill an innocent man. At this point, regardless of who you think Jesus is, regardless of who they think Jesus is, He has done nothing deserving this kind of treatment. There's nothing he ever did in his life that ever warranted the kind of treatment that he receives at the hands of these men. But I want you to look and notice how Jesus responds to these false accusations and this false testimony. The high priest questions Jesus. He says, look, you got an answer to make? Are you going to say anything? Are you going to question what's being said here? Come on. What he's he's baiting Jesus, right? He's baiting him. He, he's trying to get Jesus to entrap. He's entrapping him. So he's trying to do. He's trying to get him to say something in response to that. Well, well, let me qualify for a minute what I said here, what I meant. Right? That's what we do naturally, isn't it? When someone brings charges against us, what do we do? Well, oftentimes we default to self-justification. Well, well let, wait a minute. You don't, you don't have your facts straight, or you don't understand, or let's, right? There's often a missing piece uh, in someone's maybe accusation. Maybe their accusation is accurate. Maybe it's true. Or maybe more likely their accusation, though apparently right, needs to be ex further explained. And so the chief priest is here trying to bait Jesus into falsifying or saying something wrong that they can take his words and twist but what is so beautiful here is verse 61 but he remained silent and made no answer silence why why doesn't jesus say anything why doesn't jesus the the eternal god who knows all things he knows the thoughts of men he knew. We've considered stories of how Jesus knew when the scribes were being deceptive. He knew that they were questioning in their hearts whether or not he was. the. He, he is the eternal son of God. He knows all things. He knows their thoughts. Why doesn't he defend himself? Why doesn't he say anything? Because Jesus is not stopping this. It further demonstrates Jesus' control of the entire situation. It may appear as if Jesus 
is not in control. It may appear as if Jesus is there before these Sanhedrin, this ruling council. It may appear as if he is there unwillingly, but the reality is he is there of his own accord, but yet gave no defense against him because he was not there for himself. He was not there for himself. And we see here in verse 61 the fulfillment of what we heard in Isaiah 53. That as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not try to self-justify himself. He didn't try to explain his words. Well, let me qualify and understand. No, he submitted to the suffering that he endured, willingly submitting to the cross of Christ. And so we're told that the high priest continues. It's not sufficient. He gets frustrated. Just like Pilate will get frustrated with Jesus' silence, so also the high priest. Look, we, we know often silence is awkward, isn't it? Right? We don't like silence. When folks are silent, like it's just weird and eerie. Uh, but there's something helpful about it. And, and, but what we see is the chief priest is aggravated by it. He's frustrated by it. He's like, listen, what's the deal? Come on, I want you to say something. Aren't you going to defend yourself? Aren't you going to do something to, to defend your name and your honor? So the high priest gets right to the point. Let's stop mincing words. Let's stop beating around the bush. Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Son, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to be sent by God? Are you from God? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Now as we look at that, hopefully if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, Jews did not use God's name. They were very careful with God's name. They would not often use um, the Lord's name that way, lest they take it in vain. And so that's why the Blessed, this is a, this is a very normal uh, first century way Jews talk about God. They would not say God, but perhaps the blessed. And we see also Jesus following that same custom in verse, 50, in verse 62 when he says that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power. And if you look at your Bibles, uh, the P in power is capitalized because it's referring to a person, uh, and that person is God. And so what we see here, the Son of the Blessed, is that are you the Christ, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you God's Son? Have you come from Him? Fascinatingly, and ironically perhaps, in Mark's Gospel, the only two people that give the fullest explanation of who Jesus is comes at the words of unbelievers. Only two times in the entire gospel is a full description of Jesus given. Here, by the high priest, and then later, by the centurion. The one who condemned him to die, and the one who killed him. The one who said, you're going to die, and the one who carried that death out, were the two who gave the fullest revelation in the Gospel of Mark of who Jesus is. Because though it is in the form of a question here in our Bibles, 
And it is, it's, the question is stated in such a way as the answer is yes. You are. You are. Aren't you? Aren't you? You, you are him, aren't you? You are the one. Jesus doesn't mess around. He doesn't try to, yeah, let me end it. Hold on. Just get, let's be careful, careful. Like he's been all throughout, right? He's, he's told the disciples, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. But here he declares, I am him. That's me. And there may be something there in the I am. There may be perhaps. We don't want to make too much of that. But that is the ego a me. I am. Right? The I am. Even if there isn't some theological point that Jesus is making there, most assuredly he is making the point that, yes, I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. And so we must understand that Jesus knew who he was. Now, German liberal scholars in the early 20th century may have been confused about who Jesus was, but Jesus was not confused as to who he was. He was not merely a man. He was fully God and fully man. He was the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And in this full revelation, we see that the high priest is not confused is what I mean. The high priest doesn't hear Jesus and say, you know, does Jesus think that he's God? Does he think? I don't know. I'm not sure. Jesus wasn't very clear with what he says. No, the high priest understood very clearly what Jesus is saying. This is why he rips his clothes off and goes crazy. As we see in verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments, which is a sign of, of utter just frustration and anger. Rips his clothes. He's mad. He's furious. What further witness do we need? We don't need any of these witnesses. The guy's testifying himself. He is God. Now do you see the blindness of their hearts? They had right before them the Son of God. He was telling them, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I'm not hiding from that. But they couldn't see it. They could not see that He was the Christ. And so, these words in verse 64. And they all condemned Him as deserving death. They condemned an innocent man. He had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing to deserve. Even his confession was not sin. For he truly was the Messiah. And in verse 65 we see the depth of their own wickedness. He was humiliated and beaten. Blindfolded and punched. Who hit you? Who punched you? And he will be sent away to die at the hands of the Romans. So what does this passage teach us? What's the point? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Though innocent and undeserving of death, was condemned to die in your place. 
That sentence of condemnation was your sentence of condemnation so that you could have everlasting life with God. He was condemned as one deserving death. For as we sang earlier in that beautiful hymn, in my place, condemned he stood. In my place, condemned he stood. He, can, he was condemned for our iniquity, Isaiah says. And so I want us to consider in our remaining time how this passage provides us three ways. Three ways the condemnation of Christ brings everlasting joy to your soul. Three ways in this passage, I think, that this passage helps us understand that the condemnation of Christ is for our souls and for our everlasting enjoyment and satisfaction in God. Since Christ was condemned for your sake, then you understand, then you know the depth of God's love for you. Since Jesus Christ endured this, you know now how much God loves you. Falsely accused. Falsely accused. Treated as a criminal. Beaten. Struck. And humiliated. For you. We see in this passage a measure of God's love for His people. This is the Son of God, as Jesus has clearly told us this morning. This is God's Son. Yet He would endure the shame and sorrow. And I wonder, do you think God loves you? Do you question the love of God for you? Is the love of God for you based on you? What is God's love based on? Does it flow freely from Him or is it something that you merit or earn? Yesterday, yesterday morning, a few of us men got together and considered together this particular point. And thought through what that looked like. And we read in the book that we were considering that do, have we done something to obligate God to love us? And brothers and sisters, I want you to know there is nothing you can do in your life that is going to earn God's love for you. His love is displayed crystal clear in this passage. That he would endure such shame and such sorrow for you is clear that he loves you. There is no question of that today. And maybe in your life you're used to earning love. You Maybe you grew up in a home where you had to earn your parents' love. Or maybe you're, you were in a marriage where you had to earn your spouse's love. Or maybe you were in a family where nobody loved one another and you had to do stuff to earn love. Brothers and sisters, you can know today there is nothing you have to do to earn God's love. It flows freely and generously. The depth of God's love is a well that never runs dry. His love does not grow weary. His love is everlasting. 
And so you can know that because he was condemned, God loves you. Not only that, but since Christ Jesus was condemned for your sake, then you have assurance that his death was sufficient to save even you. That if Christ was there in your place, on your behalf, then you can have assurance that this death of Christ is sufficient. Oh, we see clearly in this passage, okay, if this is really God's Son, and this is what it takes to save me, then this is the only way I can be saved. It's popular in our secular society to hear that there are many ways and various ways to know God. Many and various ways to have a relationship with God. In fact, most recently in a popular movie that just was released last weekend, the author of this particular book and then became a movie teaches that there are a universal way of approaching God. And evangelical Christians submit that this is a good movie to go see. Oh, friends, you must understand that we don't meet with God how we kind of think we should meet with God. We don't come to God the ways we imagine, but rather we come to God the way that he has revealed himself in and through his word. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and as we consider and meditate on the fact that it was God the son who came and died in my place and in your place. Then you begin to understand the sufficiency of that death. And that that death is exclusively the only way you can have a relationship with God. And you can have assurance this morning. That your salvation is not based on you, but on the condemnation of Christ. You can know this morning without a doubt that there is nothing left that you need to do in order to merit God's grace in your life and salvation. You can know and have assurance that your salvation, yes, yours, is secured in Christ Jesus. Third and finally. Since Christ was condemned for your sake, then you don't have to face condemnation from God. We began thinking about condemnation. And it's real. And I know you struggle with it. I struggle with it. That's the enemy whispering, you're unworthy. You're not lovable. You don't deserve this. And let me tell you why. You did this, that, and you thought this, thought that. And because of all of those things, you are guilty. You deserve death. This is what the enemy does. He reminds us of our sin. He takes us before the grand jury. He drums up testimony. After testimony. After testimony. Some of them may be false, but oh, many of them are so true. 
We did do those things. We did think those things. We do deserve death. But thanks be to God. Christ Jesus was condemned for our sake. This is the hope of glory that we have, that Christ Jesus is there on our behalf, that we're not going to face this kind of condemnation because Christ Jesus faced it for us. Why Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We did not die. Jesus died for our place, in our place. And so this morning, if you've come with a weight of condemnation, a weight of shame and sorrow, you, you feel that weight. Look, Jesus isn't impressed by your wallowing in sorrow. God is not impressed by your sorrow continually and not bringing that shame to Him. Bring that shame to Christ this morning. Know that that condemnation is paid for by Christ. He will lift that burden from you. For He was condemned in your place. I often hear from saints who are well-meaning, and I think well-meaning, I hope they are. Uh, they will often tell me, why, uh, why do we talk about the Gospel so much? Why do we talk about uh, Jesus cross so much. I mean, I know the gospel's important. That's how we get saved. But, you know, isn't there like more stuff we should talk about? Like five ways to deal with a bad boss and, you know, 14 ways to love your spouse better. Aren't those kind of things important too? And so here's my exhortation to you this morning. Younger Christians who think that, look to older saints and ask them if there's something more to the gospel. Something that you need to move on to. Something that you need to get to in your life. Friends, we all feel that desire. Oh, there's got to be something more. This can't be it. This can't be the whole thing. What more is there? Look to those older saints. And ask them, is the gospel enough? Is the gospel enough? Tell me about the time where you thought the gospel wasn't enough and you found it to be good. Listen to them. And older saints, tell the story. Tell the story about how you thought there was something greater. How you thought that the gospel was kind of like the basics and there was something to move on to, something to get to in life. And how you learned through the years of your life that there isn't something more out there. There isn't something greater beyond the life of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You tell the story. How you have spent generate how you have spent decade after decade mining the depths of the riches of the glories of Christ Jesus. 
how you have searched deep into your soul and saw the wickedness of your heart, but seen rise up the love of Christ Jesus. Tell the story again and again. Let all hear that Jesus is enough. That Jesus died in your place. The innocent one, the one undeserving of death, was condemned so that you and I might have life everlasting. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give glory and praise in the name of Christ Jesus. And I know, Lord Father, Father, there are many here today that are burdened by condemnation and guilt and shame. It is a real struggle. And I do pray this morning that you would, through the cross, lift those burdens from them. That they would see the sufficiency of Christ Jesus' death for their sin. That they can sing anew today. That there is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that it washed away all our sin. As white as the snow we saw this week. So we are before Christ Jesus. We give glory and praise to you and ask that your spirit would empower us to walk in obedience in your word this week. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray. Amen.